Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to another installment of The Double Down, a WNBA podcast. We are continuing our recaps of the teams going around the league. Uh, I'm Eric Nemchak, alongside Stephen Trinkwald. Today, we are going to talk about the Los Angeles Sparks. Stephen, uh, they had a pretty successful 2019, um, as we're used to seeing from this franchise. They went 22-12. and 12. Um, They had the third best net rating in the league, fourth in offense, third in defense, so pretty solid team. Of course, they went out somewhat unceremoniously in the playoffs, the Connecticut Sun. They kind of got steamrolled there, but we're expecting them to uh, return with a vengeance this year. How about that? Yeah, for sure. I'm, they, at least on paper, you know, before we kind of hear around the league who, who's going to be in, who's going to be out, they are looking like a true contender. That's right. And, and as, as Steven said, of course, uh, June 25th is the deadline for players to opt in or opt out to play this season in Florida. So a lot's going to happen, you know, around the league that we have no control over. But uh, we're pretty confident about this team heading forward, and uh, we're going to explain why. Stephen, would you like to uh, start us off here? Well, before we even kind of get into the specifics, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about their playoff series with Connecticut? I think this was a series where both you and I thought that they were going to beat Connecticut, uh, even though Connecticut, you know, had home court advantage, had the better record. But I think both of us just thought that LA was a more talented roster, you know, obviously more experienced going to the playoffs. And, you know, they, as you said, they really just got steamrolled. Yeah, I thought the Sparks were going to win. I thought they would win handily. <laughs> of course, the Connecticut Sun, there is a hype video for the Connecticut Sun with my name on it. So I'll, I, as usual, I wear that, no problem. But yeah, like it wasn't even close, Stephen. It was like the first game they lost by nine. And then both games two and three, there were 20-point blowouts. Of course, you know, people are a lot of, you know, the, the focal point is, you know, Derek Fisher and Candace Parker's supposed feud at the end of game three. But honestly, this series was never really that close. What did you see during this, during this semifinal series that made the Suns such a tough check for the Sparks? And I think that'll be something that, you know, is one of the biggest changes with Los Angeles going to this year. Connecticut always had someone that they didn't have to guard and just did a really great job in a lot of ways, kind of mirroring how LA played defense all year over the course of the regular season, just knowing who to help help off of, whether it was trapping Chelsea Gray in pick and rolls or sagging into the lane against uh, pick and roll rollers, you know, doubling them in the post. Los Angeles, you know, you mentioned that they were fourth in offense over the course of the regular season with uh, 99.3 was their offensive rating. They had an 81.6 offensive rating against the Sun. That's wild. You know, I, they just... They could not score against this team, you know, a Sun defense that was good. You know, I think they were fifth in defense over the course of the year, if I remember correctly. But, you know, not some kind of like juggernaut. This was not like the defensive version of Washington where they were just kind of, you know, this unstoppable force or, or a movable object or what have you. But Connecticut just, they, they played defense really smart. They didn't guard TRP. They didn't guard Elena Beard. And obviously things kind of really fell apart towards the end of that series. But I think we both expect a little bit better of a, a finish this year. Absolutely. And we're going to, of course, go into the reasons why. But first, let's, let's, let's kind of go back to 2019 a little bit. This was a pretty talented offensive team. Yeah, and it's funny because they, you know, were a little bit better in the rankings defensively than offensively. But like when I look at and just kind of think about this roster, their offensive talent sort of jumps out to me more than, you know, who they are defensively. And maybe that's just like a reputation thing. But offensively, kind of their body of work, uh, they were third in transition frequency, which is great. They were only seventh in efficiency. I think a lot of that was kind of driven down by like TRP. She was fourth on this team in total transition possessions, only in the ninth percentile league-wide. Marina Mabry was right behind her in possessions in the sixth percentile league-wide. But their horses, you know, the, the 
players that they really want out there to kind of drive offense were, were really good. Chelsea Gray only in the 37th percentile in her own offense in transition, but 81st percentile in, in overall transition offense, including passes. You know, Neko Gumake is a, a terrific transition player. 82nd percentile for her. Raquana Williams, 78th percentile. So, you know, they really like to get out and run. And, you know, Ogumike in particular, like usually just has an athleticism advantage and just a, a movement advantage. You know, she, she never stops moving without the ball. And I think she, she always kind of has that advantage against most folks defending her. So the rest of their kind of offensive profile, you know, they were not a huge pick and roll team, you know, which might be surprising when you have Neko Gumake and Candace Parker as your bigs and Chelsea Gray running the point guard, but they were last in efficiency from the pick and roll ball handler, you know, in terms of individual offense that did jump all the way to third in terms of total offense, but you know, they were still 10th in frequency there. So just not a team that's going to run a ton of pick and rolls over and over again. Um, I think that is going to slightly kind of shift more towards that with Tolliver, not only in terms of the frequency, but also like the efficiency, because not only Tolliver's own individual numbers, you know, she's a pretty good pick and roll player, but it'll take the ball out of Raquana Williams' hands as a pick and roll player. And that's kind of, you know, she was a very good spot up player last year, but she had about 75% as many pick and roll possessions as she did spot up possessions. So that that was a pretty big chunk of her offense and she was just not an effective player there. So Balancing the offense between the ball handling duties between Tolliver and Gray rather than Gray and Williams, I think is going to go a long way here. You know, of course, the, the bigs we talked about, they were third in efficiency by the pick and roll roller. They were number one in efficiency for cutters. You know, no surprise there with the two Ogumikes they have. They got to the the rim okay. Uh, fourth in frequency, getting within five feet. Second in field goal percentage there. So obviously a terrific finishing team. The concerns, you know, last in free throw attempt rate. Don't see that improving a ton this year. Chine Ogumike, had a huge drop-off there last season. Her numbers will probably normalize a little bit. But Neko Ogumike had a career low last season and has seen that drop pretty significantly each of the last three years. Christy Tolliver never really gets to the line. Chelsea Gray's been declining each season pretty much since she's kind of come into her own. Sydney Weiss is probably going to play for them more this year than she did last year. And she's taken 17 total free throws in three seasons. So I would expect them offensively to continue to not get to the line. But with what they have already and with the addition of Tolliver and I, I expect them to be even better this year offensively. Yeah, you know, you, you keep bringing up Christy Tolliver. That was maybe one of the biggest offseason acquisitions by any team this past free agency period. Of course, after spending a couple seasons in Washington, she's back with L.A., where she won a championship in uh, 2016. And you're exactly right on, on that, I think. Uh, Tolliver is a player who, in my opinion, she just makes everyone else better offensively because she has, as you call it, a very versatile jump shot. Like, she can spot up, she can catch and shoot. She can, you know, come off screens. She makes these really difficult shots look very, very easy. And in Chrissy Talver, you also said, you know, LA was not a good pick and roll team last year, which was surprising to me. But she's going to be able to help out in the distribution area as well. And just having both her and a prime Chelsea Gray on the floor together, I think, just makes them so much more difficult to guard. When we went back to the Connecticut series, you said, yeah, they had no problem trapping Gray and getting the ball out of her hands or or, you know, automatically leaving one player defensively to help out elsewhere. That was really successful for them. If you have both Gray and Tolliver on the floor at the same time, I think that's a lot more difficult to do. Tolliver, she's a wizard with the ball in her hands and moving without the basketball as well. So I talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago on Shay's show, but the versatility she brings not only with her shot, but to be such an effective player with the ball in her hands and to bring the gravity that she brings without the ball, you know, 99th percentile overall as a pick and roll ball handler last year and 98th percentile as a spot-up player. I mean, you, you can't get more, much more like malleable in terms of being an 
on-ball player and off-ball player. Uh, and Christy Tolliver, just in terms of, you know, she can create for others. She can score for herself efficiently. And when she's when she doesn't have the ball, she has to be guarded. You you had mentioned spot up, moving without the ball, you know, the, moving without the basketball is kind of one, one of the things that I think is the most impressive part of her game just as an off-ball player. Like she's never just a stationary player as a, a spot up player. She's always finding the creases with her teammates' bodies just to kind of make it a little bit harder for the defender to close out or, or use her offensive players as a screener, even if they're not really aware that that they're being used as a screener. So just her her basketball IQ as an off-ball player and the versatility of her shot, not only to be able to hit it on the move, but also off the dribble, step backs. You know, she really just brings it all to the table as an offensive player um, in terms of her her shooting. You know, I would expect her to maybe get to the rim a little bit less than she did last year. She kind of had a career year there for, you know, a pretty advanced stage in her career, let's say. You know, 20% of her shots from within five feet last season only in that neighborhood really one other time as a player. And that was back in 2012. She's usually closer to 10 or 11%. And for everything else she brings to the table, I think that's fine. And as everyone else kind of adjusts their role accordingly, as, as we kind of alluded to before, that spot to really not focus on as a defense and be able to help off of, uh, there's an opportunity for that not to be the case anymore. And of course, a little bit of context there for Chrissy Tolliver getting so many of her shots at the rim last season. The floor was spaced like historically well in Washington. Um, probably won't be the same in LA. But one thing that I think Chrissy Tolliver is going to help out is with their shot chart. Now, I think the Sparks shot chart wasn't bad last season. They're above league average at the rim, both percent-wise and distribution. They're a little below league average from 11 to 21 feet, both in percent and distribution, but like, who cares, right? And they're roughly around league average from three-point range. Chrissy Tolliver is definitely going to add that long-range threat that I feel like the Sparks may have been lacking. I mean, they had some three-point shooting last season, but as we keep saying, she's the one who is going to really make this offense, you know, you're not going to be able to simply not guard anybody. And from an individual standpoint, where I think Christy Tolliver's presence is really going to help a particular player's shot chart is Chelsea Gray. She got all the way to the rim a little bit less last year than, than she does typically, down to about 18% frequency there. Her finishing was a little bit worse down there. So as the floor is just more balanced and, and that help isn't able to really cheat as, as often, um, you know, hopefully we'll see the Chelsea Gray that, that really kind of gets all the way to the basket, finishes uh, uses her her strength and you know I had mentioned before her free throw rate fell off a cliff not sure if we'll you know if that's gonna ever kind of come back to to where it was a few years ago but just at least in being able to kind of create in a more uh, balanced offensive situation you know I think Tolliver is her presence is going to do wonders for for Chelsea Gray specifically yeah and let's stay on the topic of Chelsea Gray for a minute I think she had a bit of a down year at least by her standards last season but she's still an excellent point guard you you brought up an interesting point in our notes here you said she plays kind of the role of a small forward on this team. I mean, yeah, I mean, offensively, she's definitely like the engine. You know, she she's the one kind of creating offense most of the time. You know, obviously, Candace Parker is a terrific player in that regard, too. But she is not often going to guard the point guard, and she's often being guarded by opposing threes. That's something that we've seen for a couple of years now. Alicia Clark, Duana Bonner, Diamond DeShields, Nafisa Collier, all these there are, are very like few teams that are actually going to uh, use their point guard to, to guard Chelsea Gray because she just does have such a strong frame and, and is really just going to body a point guard whenever she gets a point guard on her. So it is a, a strategy that teams have really gone to over the past few years. And, you know, maybe that does attribute a little bit to her declining individual numbers. But, you know, she's still a terrific player and, you know, she makes threes pay as well. 
Yeah, and I think there's there's kind of a domino effect there because if you're if you're putting your large wing on the opposing team's point guard, right, then your own point guard has to go guard somebody else, right? So th- I think just Chelsea Gray's her ability, just the, just the big body and the ability to play as a point guard, but with like more of a a wing player's body is it's it's it's, it's an asset in itself. Yeah, and defensively, I think it kind of works for her as well. You know. Lateral quickness is not what makes Chelsea Gray special. So to be able to guard, you know, the Shakina Stricklands or, or something like that around the league or the Alicia Clarks, you know, she has the strength to kind of make sure that those players don't just like go put her in the weight room down low. And, you know, she's not going to be kind of burned by point guards that, that are, could maybe get by her a little bit easier. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Usually it's Chelsea Gray who's, who's putting people in the weight room. But uh, it is interesting to see that her free throw rate kind of has been declining, although uh, you know, free throw rate has been declining around the league for a couple seasons. So we'll see how they officiate things in 2020. But yeah, I totally agree with you. If if Tolliver is on the floor, that's going to open up so many more possibilities for Chelsea Gray. And I think she's going to regress back to the norm, back to her elite self in 2020. So let's talk about this team's defense last year. They were number one overall in half court defense. Not a great team defensively in transition. They were, you know, sixth in frequency, which is okay. Ninth in efficiency. They had the sixth highest frequency allowed at the rim, tied for the third lowest field goal percentage allowed there. But they were number one in guarding both the pick and roll ball handler and the pick and roll roller. They did tie for the third highest three point attempt rate and allowed the highest proportion of open catch and shoot threes, but ranked seventh in efficiency on those shots. So definitely had some, some fortunate shooting luck there to be sure. Uh, they forced a good amount of turnovers. They were fourth there. And like we kind of alluded to with what Connecticut was doing to them. I thought over the course of the year, they were really good at shrinking the floor defensively when there was an opportunity to play off someone who didn't necessarily need to be guarded. They were a really good help and recover team. You know, they, I thought they had a pretty malleable defensive system. You know, sometimes they would, they would hard hedge or, or switch if it was Nekogumike. Sometimes Candace Parker would switch. Sometimes she would drop back. So their, their defense was really good. And that might be where they take a little bit of a step back, but you know, overall, I think not much of one, probably. What strikes me about this LA Sparks defense is that, at least last season, most of the minutes they're putting into their front court or their bigs or whatever you want to call them, most of them can play within a scheme, right? So you've got Neko Gumake, who's an elite defensive player. Kenneth Parker, as you said, can play within multiple schemes. Shanae Gumake can do some things defensively. She's long. She, like, she's probably not going to be bodying up many of the bigger centers in the league, but she can still provide some athleticism and playmaking out there. So yeah, just, she can, she can credibly guard fours or most fives. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think the, the versatility you have there is, is a huge asset because if you, if you have, if the majority of your minutes in the front court are going into players who can play in so many different schemes effectively like that, it just makes life so much easier on your perimeter players. Yeah. And I think, you know, Chelsea Gray, I had mentioned, she's kind of the engine of uh, their offense. I think what a lot of what makes them so good defensively as you were saying, is their their bigs. Uh, and let's start with Neko Gumake. I mean, she is she's an amazing player, right? She she brings so much defensive versatility. She can guard just about anybody on the floor at any time, despite always having a size disadvantage against her opposing center. But, you know, she can guard on the perimeter if you need her to. She can guard down low. It's hard to call her an unsung hero because she's an MVP and makes the All-Star game every year. But <laughs> it almost still feels like she's not appreciated enough. I agree with that. Honestly, because when you think about who, who is the star of this team, it, it's gone from like Candace Parker, deservedly so, don't get me wrong, but like it's gone from Candace Parker and now everyone thinks of Chelsea Gray, right? But Neka Gumake, I mean, she's so solid. She's, as you said, really intelligent and she's, 
an elite defensive player, despite being constantly, constantly seemingly overmatched against all the really bigger centers in the league. And her consistently being able to hold her own down there is really says it all about her versatility. Yeah. And she's not going to be, you know, the rim defending shot blocking center. She's not going to block a lot of shots for you, but she has such great hands and anticipation, not only getting in the passing lanes, but just like poking away a loose dribble. Like you, you just can't be sloppy or even like the slightest bit lackadaisical or or make a little bit of a a mistake, bringing the ball down or double clutching when, when you don't need to, or NECA is just going to take it away from you. Her, her steal rate's great. And just like her, her anticipation there is so impressive. And then offensively, I mean, what, what can you say about her second all time in true shooting percentage? And, you know, this is something I, I talk about kind of all the time on the show when we really dive into to young players specifically, but it's so much easier to be an efficient player when you can just finish really well with both hands. And just like watching her make layups, you wouldn't know whether she was right-handed or left-handed. She's so good with her left hand finishing, you know, whether it's at full speed or, or in traffic, you know, we, we touched on her transition game. She, she really brings it there and is always going to outrun like the Brittany grinders on the court to, to just get open opportunities. And one thing I think that maybe could get overlooked is, you know, she's not a monster in terms of her free throw attempt rate. And I know I mentioned that that has kind of gone down every year, but she's still in the the top of the league in terms of just overall fouls drawn. And a lot of those are just like loose ball fouls because she never stops moving. She's always going after loose balls, always over six fouls drawn per 100 possessions, well within the top 20 for like regular rotation players. You know, that number was as high as eight a few years ago. So it's still kind of dropping down each year, but those falls still have value. You know, that you're still putting falls on opposing players. You're still getting closer to the bonus. So going back to what you said about her finishing ability, she's a beast down there. That's she's, she uses both hands. She's got soft hands. Like she catches everything. She can use both hands. She gets off the floor quickly. She uses the glass. She's got a, she's got kind of like a, a graceful athleticism, you know, like she's obviously like a super strong player, but whenever she goes up with it, she's never seems out of control. Right. I remember one, one time, this is back during her MVP season, I believe when uh, the Sparks were visiting Chicago, I was watching the Sparks warm up and someone on their coaching staff, I don't know who it was, but they're going through a drill in which they were like holding NECA back while she was warming up and finishing with both hands. And just like, so like, just like the ability to finish through contact like that, that's not to be overlooked it's a real luxury they have there with NECA. And I mean, I think we can both agree that she's probably not going to put up a 737 true shooting percentage again, like she did in 2016, but she's still a super solid player. She's still in her prime athletically. You know, she's, she, she makes the all-star game every, every season for a reason. Yeah. And the chemistry that her and Parker have with the high low game, like she's so good at, you know, sealing even bigger defenders off when Parker's up high and she's able to kind of get those easy. I mean, they're not easy because, you know, she's doing a lot of work down there, but they are pretty much right at the basket because she's sealed off her opponent so well. Just every part of her game, you know, outside of maybe like scoring in isolation or blocking shots, as I mentioned, but she's amazing. Yeah, we love Neko Gumake on the double down. Um, you mentioned Candace Parker. This is kind of a, an interesting player to get into last season because, you know, obviously she's an, she's an all-timer. You know, she's one of the greatest players of all time. She's held this franchise down for so many years. Last season, it kind of struck me as she wasn't really healthy for the entire season. Her production just took a huge nosedive. She was she posted by far the lowest true shooting percentage of her career. It was kind of foreshadowing the opening of the season. There were back-to-back games in which she shot one for nine in both of them. I think that was kind of like a it, it kind of a preview of coming attractions, if you will, because like she just didn't seem into it. You know, she missed like a dozen games, many coming in late July. 
she just never seemed healthier at her physical peak. Her rebounding numbers took a hit. As far as minutes are concerned, like you, you can say like, okay, Derek Fisher was, was too uh, lenient with his, with his rotations or whatever, but she dropped from being a 30-minute-per-game player to a 26-minute-per-game player. When it's Candace Parker you're talking about, that's a significant figure, right? So what did you see from Candace Parker? What is she still good at? What is she declining at? Do you think she can still be like a, an all-star level contributor here? I'll take the last question first. I definitely still think she can be an all-star <laughs> level contributor. I'm afraid, and obviously I don't know if this is the case and I hope it's not, but it might be one of those things where like when she's on, she just looks as good as ever and she just has a little bit more kind of inconsistent games. We, we've already talked a lot about their playoff series against Connecticut. You know, never mind even game three where she hardly played at all, but game two in Connecticut, I think she had like single digit points, uh, you know, three or, or so. But I mean, she's still, what she brings to the table is still everything. You know, she can still score, she can still pass. She's still a great positional defender. You had mentioned pretty much career low numbers across the board, career high in turnover rate. But I think, you know, she's still like one of the best bigs in the league and just like challenging vertically, even if she isn't going to get the block, you know, she, her presence down there still matters, even if like her, her numbers are a little bit worse, you know, maybe the pinpoint passes like aren't going to get there as frequently. I think her shooting, you know, it was not good last year, but 36% three point shooting the previous three seasons on pretty decent volume. With a healthy season, I would expect that to kind of normalize a little bit. So maybe she isn't Candace Parker of old, but let's say she's the fourth best player on this team. You know, the, the top three are still pretty good. So I think even if she is fine and kind of what we saw from her at, at times last year, you know, maybe not the best of what we saw from her, but like what we saw kind of generally from her last year, you know, I think that's still enough to kind of give them what they need. Okay, so first of all, uh, if Candace Parker is your fourth best player, I would love to coach that team. I would love to root for that team, man. That's that, again, that's that's a luxury. Uh, did you know Candace Parker has made fewer All Star games than Neko Gumake has? That's very funny, and I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, she has more All WNBA teams than she has All Star teams. That's interesting. That, we, we could we could go into award discrepancies all day, but I, I just found that that odd. Um, but I mean, let's cut her some slack. She's 34 years old. Um, she's done so much in the WNBA, and of course, playing year round. And she does still bring skills if she's healthy or not. Like she's still six foot four with pretty much unparalleled court vision and passing ability for her size. When you look at a team that's going to have, again, bringing back Christy Tolliver and now both of the Agumake sisters battling down low, that's still one heck of an asset. Yeah. And I expect her to be great still, you know, maybe not prime Candace Parker, but she's going to be a great player next year. Now, now that we kind of talked about their sort of big four, Let's kind of dive into their small forward options. Who do you think should be the, the fifth starter, fifth finisher? How, how do you see that kind of uh, that spot shaking out? Yeah, you know, and I think this is, if anything, like this is the question for the Sparks right now because they're just, they're just so set almost everywhere else. I think you got to keep rolling with Tierra Ruffin Pratt, at least as a starter. You know, they did go out and acquire Brittany Sykes, but I'm not sold on Brittany Sykes' fit with this team just because, like, she's below league average shooting pretty much – everywhere and she seems like a player who kind of needs she's not a very effective off-ball player I feel like whereas TRP I mean she's she ranked really up there in unguarded catch-and-shoot opportunities but like that was 80 something percent of her possessions as you said earlier teams are willing to ignore like virtually ignore TRP from beyond the arc but she does bring the defense I mean when you're starting a game it's kind of a kind of like an unspoken rule where you need somebody to go out there and guard the opposing team's best player so she can give that to you I think you're going to agree with me that she should not be finishing games however 
Yeah. And, you know, this was a point that I made a couple of weeks ago back on WNBA with Shay that you were kind of alluding to that skill set that she brings, that sort of lockdown one on one defense. Like, that's just not as valuable against bench units. You know, they, those benches often don't have that player where you just need to kind of stick a lockdown defender on. Right. Um, and beyond that, you know, her weaknesses are just covered up better playing alongside Chelsea Gray and Christy Tolliver and Neko Bumake and Candace Parker. You know, she's going to be at her most effective in those situations, starters versus starters. And, you know, she was a credible three-point shooter, if often an ignored one. But, you know, I think, you know, you're just asking so much from the other four people when one player just isn't being guarded at all. So I do think she should start. Um, who would you lean towards to finish games? You know, I like Sydney Weiss because I, I feel like she brings that extra playmaking ability. You know, she's not really the – nobody's going to accuse her of being the best athlete in the world or the best defender in the world, but she can dribble and she can pass and she can shoot. And that's pretty valuable to have in a player, especially when she's surrounded by all this other beastly talents. And the other option I would say is Raquana Williams just because she's such a good shooter. Like, she can get hot in an instant, and she's one of those players in the league who can go – on a 9-0, 10-0 run all by herself. Uh, if you're talking about floor spacing, like she's probably the best option to go with at the three. Defense maybe kind of iffy on that. And of course, as you alluded to earlier, she's not going to be making any plays in the pick and roll. But if you're looking for someone who can, you can just park in the corner and say, okay, draw a defender, Williams is probably your best bet. I lean Raquana Williams here just because I think she does give you the most offense out of the options. You know, she probably isn't a good defensive player, but I think she's a good enough defensive player uh, when you have you know, Candace Parker and Nekogumake behind her. But her shooting is just a little bit too valuable, I think, to give up in these situations. Weiss would probably be my second choice because she is also a credible threat out there from beyond the arc and does give you, to be sure, like a little bit more passing. You know, I think Weiss is one of those players that I think like every coach would just love to have on her team. You know, she obviously yeah. kind of works hard out there. She's she's a pretty smart player. I, you know, do think there's kind of a, a hard ceiling on something I talk about frequently, the versatility of her jump shot. You know, she has very front forward footwork. She shoots across the opposite side of her body, you know, from the, the right side with her left hand. So just like going around curls or, or really kind of just catching on the move, it's going to be really difficult with those mechanics, but she still moves off the ball effectively in terms of just like relocating and getting to a good spot to take the shot. So, you know, when it comes down to it, I, I think Raquana Williams or Weiss kind of just whatever you need in that situation, maybe they're are some times where you go with TRP, but Williams would be my my favorite for that position. And then out of the four, you know, I would just like to see Sykes not really play that much unless she kind of really shows that she's a different player than she was in Atlanta, to be honest. You know, she 18th percentile in, in spot up possessions, 25th percentile in catch and shoot possessions. You know, she is a little bit of a spacey defender. I, I just don't really think she brings it consistently on that end. You know, she's another player who just isn't going to get guarded. She wants to take some really questionable shots. Uh, she likes to take long twos off the dribble. So I, I just kind of hope she doesn't really play that much, to be honest. Brittany Sykes is a player who, during her rookie season, I was I was amazed by her, her athleticism. I was like, wow, the sky's the limit for Brittany Sykes. And years later, she's still kind of that same player, if that makes sense. Like, she hasn't really shown that much improvement to me. Um, you know, no, no disrespect intended. She is still super athletic. She's still a player who I think can be reliable in transition. But when you think about who is the best complement to the Sparks core of star talent, I don't think it's Brittany Sykes. And I have a hard time envisioning a scenario in which Sykes is a better option than either Raquanda Williams or Sydney Weiss or TRP. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I guess one other player we should talk about for that fifth spot 
is Simone Augustus. Yeah. I, I mean, Simone Augustus for me. Okay. Obviously this was maybe I wouldn't call this a huge signing because Simone Augustus is obviously in the twilight of her career, but it sure was surprising to basically everybody. Cause I think it was, she's just one of those players who you associate with a single franchise and that's Minnesota Lynx. And to see her now playing, finishing her career with the rival Los Angeles Sparks is going to be sitting weirdly with a lot of people. I'm not sure what Simone Augustus really brings to this team. Is there anything you can think of? I mean, I think best case scenario, you know, she can give you some offense on second units, you know, when you just need someone to be able to take and make a tough shot. But granted, you know, there was injuries last year and, you know, I'm higher on some other players, maybe unfairly that also dealt with injuries last year who had bad seasons. But I just, I don't see how Simone Augustus is a high level contributor at this point anymore. You know, she was sub 35 true shooting percentage, even with all of their best players on the floor, you know, lineups with her in them were a complete disaster with Minnesota's kind of big three of fouls, Collier and Sims with Simone off the floor. They were 7.3 net rating with her on the floor. They were minus 6.3. Like obviously we're dealing with some small sample size here, but I mean, to be kind of that bad with those three players, like th- that was a pretty good lineup. So, and yeah, and it's not like she's going to be going out there and locking anybody up either. You know, yeah. for example, Elena Beard finally retired. Um, kudos to her on an amazing career, a terrific career. Even as her, she was kind of headed out the door, she was still a player who was an amazing defender. I mean, honestly, when you, when you, when you think of players who were able to kind of prolong their careers based on hustle and defense, Elena Beard has to be at the top of that list. I don't see that happening with Simone Augustus, especially when we're talking about, okay, so she can get her own shot. Well, at this stage of her career, that's going to be like a tough fadeaway two-pointer, you know? Why not just have Raquana Williams out there taking those shots? I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it makes for an interesting story, but I don't really see any instances in which Simone Augustus needs to be playing, at least in competitive games. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with you. So they made a couple other interesting, well, or not interesting, depending on your point of view, acquisitions. A couple of big players, Marie Gulich in the, in the uh, Atlanta Dream trade, and Christina Nigue traded from the Dallas Wings. Which one do you want to start with here? Because both I think we have some opinions on. Well, let's just start with the, the trade uh, with Atlanta. What did you think of the trade kind of at the time and now Kalani Brown for uh, Gulich and Sykes? From LA's perspective, I didn't really think it was that necessary. I'm not huge on Kalani Brown as a player, but... She did some things last season that I think were that I think were okay, and you you can't really argue with the size um, she brings to a team. I don't think and like for the players they acquired Brittany Sykes, Marie Gulich, I don't know how much of a role either of them are going to have on this team. Those minutes could just go to better players, you know. I didn't see it from LA's perspective. Did, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, at the time for LA, I liked it a little bit more than I do now, uh, just because I didn't really see a path for Kalani Brown really being a contributor on this team with Shanae Gumake and Maria Vidiva ahead of her, uh, and clearly much better players in my opinion. And, you know, bringing a little bit of wing depth, you know, every team could use wing depth. So so I liked it more than I think kind of the more I look at Brittany Sykes' game and, and fit how it fits in with this team. I'm a little more down on it, but, you know, certainly for next season, I'd rather, I think, have Kalani Brown than either of the players that they, they gave away. But, uh, you know, eventually, you know, Vadiva will be back, hopefully. So so maybe it was a good trade, and, and I'm just being a little too short-sighted. I, I don't know. I, I agree with you in that, you know, Kalani Brown would probably be, be blocked by better players, even this season as Maria Vadiva is sitting out. But at the same time, okay, so you want to trade Kalani Brown, but could you get a different return? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, they got Mary Gulich in any case. Once again, I'm having a hard time seeing like what her role on this team is going to be or what she's supposed to be good at. Do you have anything? I mean, I just, I don't see what her role in this league is supposed to be, to be honest with you. Like, I'm, I'm not sure kind of where her strengths as a WNBA player are. You know, she's already 26. She's not an efficient offensive player. She's not a good roller. She's not, she's a solid offensive rebounder, below average defending bigs last year and, and post-ups. And that was, you know, primarily playing against backups too. So I hope she doesn't see the floor too, too much. You know, I hate to kind of keep saying this about their back of the rotation players, but let's hope Derek Fisher keeps a tight rotation. But Marie Gulich, you know, I, I don't really see much from her. I, I agree with you. Okay, so that means the other option would be Christina Nigue, who is on her third team in her short WNBA career, which is probably not a good sign. I'm higher on Nigue than you are on Gulich. I'm not sure how high you are on Nigue, but before we get into that, Let's kind of go over why they made this trade. Um, they drafted uh, a setter out of Miami this season, Beatrice Montpremier, uh, in the second round of the draft. And they literally could not afford to keep her on the roster. And it was so freaking close, people. Like, So this, these cap numbers are from Richard Cohen at her hoop stats. As of right now, the LA Sparks are $2,000 under the salary cap. And that's with Anigwe getting paid Fifty-seven grand. Mom Premier would have been paid fifty-nine thousand seven hundred fifty dollars. So I'm not very good at math, so this could be laughably wrong. Um, but Mom Premier would have put them over by like seven hundred fifty bucks. So it, it's it's just really weird how they had to maneuver their way around this and say, okay, well, I guess we we have to waive this young project front court player because we're going to be over the cap. So let's go, let's trade for another young project front court player so we can stay under the cap and have 12 players. That, it was just very interesting uh, cap management to me. But um, yeah. So I guess, my, I guess my thing with that is like, would this trade not be there for them, you know, a couple of weeks into the season when like from a proration standpoint, they would be able to afford Beatrice Mom Premier and they wouldn't have to trade Marina Mabry for Christina. Like, I, okay, so according to Richard Cohen, once again, I'm no, I'm no CBA expert. I'm not reading that whole thing. I'm sorry. If you're a lawyer, if you're a budding lawyer out there, you would, you would love it, but uh, I am not that person. Players who, like Mom Premier, would actually be able to be signed for $57,000 after she clears waivers, which she did. So to answer your question, yes, they would have been able to re-sign Mom Premier. So I don't really, like, I understand why that's confusing because I don't really understand it either. So there's obviously more going on there than we, than we know. What we do know is that Christina Igwe was not good last season and uh, she needs to step it up if she wants to find a role in this league. Yeah, and I'm, before I even kind of get into my thoughts, I want to just toss it back to you because you are someone who is high in Christina Igwe. So yeah. if things work out, what is she bringing to a WNBA team? I would say energy and rebounding. Maybe finishing ability, but like you said, she was an astoundingly poor finisher last season, which um, which really surprised me. Like I, I watched her a lot in college, and I, I just saw this athletic beast who has a very high ceiling just because of that athleticism and because of her length. But, of course, you know, center is a difficult position to transition to in the WNBA, especially if being big and athletic is your only real skill. You know, I'm, I'm going to go back to players we've been talking about who need young players who need like a, like a go-to move. Christina Nigue needs a go-to move, right? Just lobbing it over the top and catching it and going up with it, that's not going to work at this level. And I think we saw that last year where she just could not get it going, like in, in, in any fashion. Yeah, and Christina Nigue, um famously, as we mentioned in our Dallas episode, in the 0th percentile last year in defending yeah. post-ups, which is oh. not good for a center. 
You, you know what's interesting? Um, the Sparks GM Michael Fisher, when he was uh, when he was talking about this Christina Nigue signing or acquisition, rather, I, I specifically remember him saying this. I don't have the quote on me, but he said something along the lines of. Yeah, I've seen Christine uh, really lock down a lot of opposing post players. You know, she locked down Brittany Griner. I've seen her defend a lot of other post players well. And then I had the synergy page up. I was like, okay, whatever you say, man. That's an interesting point. But um, anyway, continue. Yeah, and it wasn't good. And it wasn't much better um, offensively either. She got to the free throw line a ton. You know, I think she was in the, the top four or five in terms of regular rotation players. Uh, a 455 free throw attempt rate. That's really, really good. And yeah. she still managed to be 100 points worse than league average in terms of her true shooting. So you have to be really bad from the floor. Like she she could not finish anything. She she cannot or could not, at least last year, I would expect her to improve there this year to be sure. She could not finish around the rim. And despite her usage being pretty low, it just seemed like every time she touched the ball, she was just going to throw it up no matter what the situation, no matter how many people were guarding her, you know, where the defense was coming from, how many open players there were on the court. So that energy rebounding, getting to the line, I, I would imagine she won't be in the zeroth percentile and defending post-ups again next year. Maybe it all comes into her being a solid rotation player, but I, I do think she probably has an uphill battle. Okay, so who should be the Sparks' fourth big? Marie Gulich or Kristen Igwe? Well, you have, to, you have to answer seriously. I mean, my, my preference truly, my preference truly is that they play an eight-player rotation and don't have a fourth big unless they need okay. one. I, I know eight-player rotations are, are not very common, but I, they should give minimum minutes to, their, to the players outside of what I see as their, their top eight. So obviously, you know, Parker Agumake and Chine Agumake as their, their bigs and uh, five perimeter players. But forced to choose one, you know, I would roll with Christina Nigue. I think she has higher upside. You know, Gulich probably is a better defender at this point. Yeah, I, I would go with Nigue. I just think there's, there's a little bit more there to uncover. Well, you're talking about an eight-player rotation. Derek Fisher definitely did not do that last season. I think that was one of the criticisms of, of his coaching. Yeah, he was playing, what, 15, 20 players a game? Yeah, it was, it was, it was very odd. You know, he, he was going with, like, lineups. that had. Here's the thing about that. Like, you have Candace Parker and both of Gumake's sisters. Of course, given Candace was injured for a lot of the season, but I digress. Even so, those are all players who can play both the four and the five, and they can play within a scheme. Why are you playing – you know, Kalani Brown and Maria Vadiva together so often. I just didn't understand that. There's so much ability, and especially now, when you've got both Chelsea Gray and Christy Tolliver on the team, there's so much staggering that can be done here. There's so much, even, I don't want to call it like positionless basketball, but there's a ton of positional versatility here. I don't see how Derek Fisher doesn't shorten his rotation here. Especially because like, okay, so I, I hear the, you know, the depth thing. We want to keep our players fresh, you know, for the playoffs or whatever. Well, in the playoffs, they got just absolutely demolished by a team that infamously <laughs> did not run a long rotation, right? So I don't know, dude. This, this is an interesting one. Yeah, that, that team that they lost against were playing like multiple players 38 minutes a game. That's yeah. So yeah, I mean, there, there's no reason for two of their top four to not be on the court at all time. Like you got to have one of Gray and Tolliver and one of Parker and NECA on the floor at all times, in my opinion. And you can kind of use the early part of the season to w- see which combinations work, but Gray, Tolliver, TRP, Parker, Agumake, Agumake, Raquana Williams, Sidney Weiss, roll with those eight. If you need emergency minutes, you know, I guess let's see what Brittany Sykes and, and Christina Nigue can give you, but I wouldn't be playing 10, 11 players with this roster. That's to be sure. Okay. And we keep, we keep mentioning Shanae Gumake. So before we sign off, we need to mention her as well. Um, she's another really good player. There's no doubting that. 
she kind of had a down year. I don't even want to say kind of. She she definitely had a down year. It was her first season in L.A. from being uh, after she was traded from Connecticut. She kind of forced a trade from Connecticut. She was no longer the starter. She was no longer the the primary interior presence, and uh, her production reflected that. Yeah, it was a tough season all around. You know, there were so many kind of little things that, and, and I shouldn't say little, but there were so many kind of secondary things that really took a hit in her game. You know, her free throw attempt rate fell off a cliff. Her own fall rate like skyrocketed, at least on like a per 36 basis. She still managed to have like plus efficiency from uh, like a league-wide individual basis, but her own true shooting percentage still dropped over 100 points from the prior season in Connecticut. So, you know, she started 14 games last year. She came off the bench for 18. As a starter, 56% true shooting, coming off the bench, 50% true shooting. Wow. As a starter, 7.1 net rating, coming off the bench, minus 6.4. There's definitely some noise in, in the net rating, but, you know, the, the true shooting percentage, I think, kind of speaks for itself, right? Yeah, and, and, and looking at these, these figures you got, she only played, in the games in which she did not start, she only played 16.4 minutes a game. That's low for a player of Sinead McKay's caliber. And that can go up. You know, I, I think for sure when you're splitting, you know, 80 minutes between three players, as I think they should, you know, yeah. the, the two big spots between their three good bigs, you know, that can definitely get up to 20 minutes a game. And, and I, I think it definitely should. You know, I, I don't think, you know, Derek Fisher should be kind of playing with, with the rotation as much, at least this year. So you would expect Sinead's numbers to go back to normal this season? I mean, I would hope so. You know, I think coming off the bench as a, you know, a sixth player, backup center, playing some power forward, playing some center, she should be able to dominate backup units. Like she's so much better than just about every other backup big in the league. She's, you know, a starting caliber player to be sure. But I think this role as like, you know, a super sub should really kind of be an opportunity for her to flourish and, and have her, you know, dominate bench units. So that, that's at least what I'm hoping for. And that's what I would expect in year two, kind of being more acclimated to this. How about you? You know, I think one thing, I mean, first of all, I agree. I mean, I, I think it's actually very interesting how she was so ineffective against bench lineups. Obviously, as you said, ton of noise with, with on-off splits and all that stuff. But um, yeah, it seems like not a lot went right for her, especially like the finishing. It's very interesting. I, I remember back when Sinead was on the sun, year after year, she and NECA, this is, it, was, it was pretty funny. They would always be like almost exactly the same efficiency finishing at the rim, which is, which was excellent year in and year out. Uh, but it just didn't seem like she was able to really establish herself at the rim as we were used to seeing. Um, I, I do think that she also, she kind of was adding that long two point shot to her game. I think she should remove it. <laughs> because, I also think she should remove it. Yeah. Because I mean, it's just not a good shot, especially for her. You got, I would much rather see Candace Parker operating from that area just because of her passing and her, her vision, a bit, her, her vision. Cause, and then have Neca or Shanae, as you said, down low really pinning their player in the post and, and, and putting them in goal I just don't see why that's a good shot at any opportunity especially with with these players around her yeah or even neck up up top obviously you know maybe one of, one of the few flaws in Neko Gulmake's game is maybe she's not an amazing passer but she's at least a respected jump shooter so to have her be able to kind of space the floor a little bit more and, and have Shanae be the one operating down low like I just don't really see that long two ever kind of really being a real threat for, for Shanae. Okay, so Stephen, when it comes down to it, in my opinion, the Sparks are the team to beat this year. I don't really see any team, especially considering, like, of course, we went over the unfortunate news of, of Kelsey Plum being injured for the Las Vegas Aces. There will be players who will be sitting out, you know, with this crazy COVID-19 situation and this 
volatile situation with them playing in Florida. I think LA has the fewest, they've got a ton of star power and they don't really have that many weaknesses. So I think they're probably the best team in the league right now. Would you, would you agree? Would you disagree? I would agree. And let's maybe, you know, we, I think we have been pretty high on them. Are there any specific weaknesses before we kind of get into their overall outlook from just like a league standing standpoint, any specific weaknesses that, that would concern you for this team? You know, entering the off season, I would say like a wing player who can go out and get their own shot or shoot the ball. Obviously with Chrissy Tolliver, that's no longer a concern. So right now the biggest concern to me would be in the front court. I think if Candace Parker can return to at least like her early thirties production, like I said, she's 34 years old. You know, we, we can't expect her to be an all world player forever, but if she can at least be better and healthier than she was last season, I don't see a better team in the league than the LA Sparks. And then you get into like, well, what about their depth in the, in the front court? Is, is Fisher going to go at the 20 player rotation? Yeah, that's another concern. But personnel wise, it's Candace Parker's health. That's my biggest question mark. Sure. So some other ones that, that I have, you know, opponent free throw attempt rate, they were third highest last year. Uh, I, I don't really see how that's going to improve much. Uh, you know, Kalani Brown and Maria Vadiver were, were big culprits for them last year in terms of putting opponents on the line. And they're gone, obviously, but, you know, Shanae was also a big culprit for them. If Christina Niwe plays at all, she's going to follow a ton. Uh, so opponents, three-point attempt rate, I think you can get away with it for against a lot of teams, you know, giving up a ton of threes. But if they run into a Washington or Seattle, yeah. you know, that, that team can just, you know, one of those teams can just really shoot the lights out and put an end to, to a series pretty quick. You know, sorry to interrupt, but like one of the defining games of last season was – Actually, there was a couple of them, and they were, they were both L.A. versus Washington. In both of the games that I, that I remember, I mean, Washington was – it was a blowout. Washington won. And L.A. continued to leave people like Ariel Atkins and Ariel Powers wide open in the corner. And that's something like the opponent three-point attempt rate. Yeah, that might work against some teams, but against the really good teams, against the teams that you're going to need to beat in the conference finals, in the semifinals, uh, like you, you're going to need to adjust that. You know, I think age-driven regression, certainly a concern. Candace Parker, you mentioned it. Chelsea Gray and Nekogumake are getting a little bit worse, at least in terms of their own numbers each year. Maybe overall team athleticism. You know, I think if I could just see like, you know, this is one example, but uh, a diamond to shield just like running up and down the court on them. Like they just have no answers for a player like that. And obviously there's only one of diamond to shields in the league, but something like that would be a little bit of a concern to me as well. Okay, but at the end of the day, I mean, when we're talking about Washington, that was a that was an historical season for the Mystics, at least offensively, it was. Um, and they're not going to really have that same kind of firepower. At least we don't think they will this season. Of course, Las Vegas Aces will unfortunately be without one of their best shooters. So we are. And, and I should say, we specifically, you and I, don't think they will. A lot of people do think they will, and we'll, well, we'll get to it in a few weeks. Everyone's allowed to have their own opinion, right? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, and as always, if we think we're wrong at Double Down WNB on Twitter. We would love to uh, engage with you. So yeah, just uh, to have it on record, I do think this is going to be the best team in the league. I think they are one of the the favorites to win a championship. As always, we'll, we'll see who sits out, who's healthy. You know, if Brianna Stewart is Brianna Stewart, Seattle's right up there with them. Those are kind of the two that I'm really sort of keeping my eye on as, as true contenders. Vegas was up there up until, you know, 10 days ago or whatever. Yeah, would you say that they're your favorites to win the title? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're too talented. They're too deep. They've got actually that's okay. So before someone jumps on me for saying that, like, I know talent doesn't always win out, 
as we saw, for instance, when the Sparks played Connecticut last season in the playoffs, we thought the Sparks would handle the Sun fairly easily. They did not. But I think the Sparks only got better, whereas a lot of other teams, there are just so many question marks, especially given the climate. They're my favorite as well. Yeah, and I would say they, they have a ton of top-end talent and, and depth yeah. can be pointed to as a, a real concern because I don't think they have a lot of back-of-the-roster talent. Okay, so I think that's going to do it for us. So thank you so much for listening. As always, we really, really appreciate you all. As always, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google. Um, we're on Twitter, like I said, at Double Down WNBA. Or if you want to follow our personal accounts for any reason, at Nemchak E or at Trinkwald. Steven, anything else you'd like to add? Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Eric, it was fun, as it always is. Always fun with you, man. All right. Everyone, take care. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you later.